Welcome to Animals Today, your home for serious talk about animals. I'm Dr. Lori Kirshner. In a surprising move, and one that has the entire animal welfare community extremely concerned, the USDA, that's the U.S. Department of Agriculture, has just removed critical information from its website about the welfare and treatment of many animals. And really, the reaction of all the animal groups, large and small, and the reaction of so many people on social media has been one of shock and worry. Now, there's still a lot of information to be learned about how this happened and what exactly is going on here, but let's review what we know at this time. To do this, I want to welcome back to the show Senior Director of the Humane Society of the United States Campaigns Against Puppy Mills, John Goodwin. Welcome back, John. Yeah, well, thanks for having me back on. John, why don't we start by you telling us what information was scrubbed from the USDA website? In an abrupt decision, the USDA pulled down all Animal Welfare Act inspection reports and all Horse Protection Act inspection reports. This was information that inspectors had accumulated from visits to puppy mills, to animal research facilities, to animal exhibitors like roadside zoos, to certain horse shows where Tennessee walking horses are exhibited, and uh, there's a certain practice that's, that uh, is used to inflict pain on the uh, Tennessee walking horses' ankles so that they would walk with an exaggerated gait in this particular show event. And this was information that people needed to know, and all of it was just stripped off the Internet mm. just with no notice wow. about three weeks ago. Who accesses this information? How is it used? Groups like the Humane Society of the United States have relied on this information. We put out a report every year called the Horrible Hundred, where we document animal cruelty at 100 problem puppy mills, and we largely rely on these government documents. And then animal advocates would use the information from our report when talking to local officials about problems at pet stores in their area, stores who were getting puppies from some of the worst puppy mills in the country. You even had seven state laws that require that pet stores acquire puppies from places that do not have certain severe violations on their animal welfare inspection reports. Well, now those laws are completely unenforceable because an animal control agency has no independent way of verifying that the uh, places that bred the puppies in the pet store actually came from facilities with clean reports. It, it just goes on and on and on. This is an assault on uh, animals first and foremost. It's an assault on consumers. It's an assault on local agencies that are trying to enforce certain laws. The only beneficiary are those who abused animals, got caught, and don't want their customers to know about it. Wow. Now, would you comment on animals in research labs? What information previously was available online about animal labs, and what will be the effect of losing access to this information? Well, the animal research angle is particularly interesting because the HSUS had sued in 2005, uh, arguing that the public had a right to know certain information about what was going on in laboratories. And there was a legal settlement in 2009 where the USDA agreed to have certain information publicly available on their website. 
And that information was stripped from the web as well, something that we've uh, uh, put them on notice that is going to be an object of litigation um, if they do not quickly rectify the problem. But it was numbers of animals that are used by species, you know, all sorts of data. If a facility was cited because they had violated one of the uh, uh, provisions in the Animal Welfare Act in regards to the care and the housing of the animals, uh, there was a lot of really useful information that was in there. Now, I know a special interest of yours is puppy mills. This removal of information from their their website greatly will impact our ability to monitor the breeding industry as a whole, right? Yeah, it absolutely will. I mean, you know, the puppy millers... They, they they cry and they whine any time what they do is exposed in the light of the day. But the fact is is that these were reports written by USDA inspectors who had no particular uh, agenda one way or the other. And it's just it's shocking that they would take this information down and deny the public access to what it says. But that said, there's incredible pressure to put this stuff back up. 118 members of Congress so far have signed letters. Uh, there have been several letters to the USDA demanding the information go back up. Oh, fantastic. There's been several lawsuits that have been filed. Okay. And they've been taking a beating. I mean, when you've got conservative commentators like Tucker Carlson and Laura Ingram and progressive commentators like Rachel Maddow on the same page of an issue, you know that uh, uh, someone has done something really, really bad. Right, exactly. You know, John, the USDA states that this action was taken due to privacy concerns and court rulings. What do you think this means? And is there any element of validity in those concerns? No, there's there's no validity there at all. I mean, if, if you have a restaurant and you fail your health inspection, that information is going to be publicly available. Um, if you uh, commit certain offenses, you know, like someone shoplifts a soda from a convenience store, their name might end up in the newspaper before their case has been adjudicated. Why is it th- that those folks names can be exposed when they've been accused of doing something they're not supposed to do. But someone who's abused an animal is afforded some sort of uh, privacy so that no one will know what they've done. Uh, Then you take this another step, you'd have some of these puppy millers who would complain about, well, these inspection reports would have the address of our business on them. And we don't want people to know where we are because people don't like what we do. And yet the number one trade group for the puppy millers, the Missouri Pet Breeders Association, puts their entire membership directory on their website, complete with addresses, phone numbers, and emails. Their membership directory actually has more personal information in it than was ever on a USDA inspection report. Mm. Apparently, they don't care that much about privacy. Apparently, that's a canard. That's just an excuse. The real issue is not letting their customers know what they've done to these dogs. Now, can this be attributed to the new Trump's administration team, or is this something that was being developed under Obama? And do we know any of the individual people who might be responsible for this? And if not, John, would you care to speculate? Well, I can do a little speculation. There's been a lot of finger-pointing because nobody wants to own up to being responsible for this ludicrous decision to uh, strip this information, to purge this information. Now, people in the current administration are saying that this was considered uh, last year by the Obama administration, but then a former spokesperson for the USDA said, no, we had thought about it but rejected this idea. Uh, So you've kind of got people pointing fingers uh, at each other. 
But I will say this. There's one thing we do know for sure. That's that there's a man named Brian Klippenstein who has been a part of the USDA transition team. They have these transition teams to help agencies move from one administration to the next when a new president comes in. Mm -hmm. And he had previously been the uh, executive director of a group called Protect the Harvest. This is an organization that spent a quarter million dollars in North Dakota in 2012 to stop an effort to raise penalties for torturing a dog, cat, or horse. There was a complete agriculture exemption, a complete research exemption, complete animals entertainment exemption. This was targeted at people that do things like set kittens on fire, Mm. and they chose to spend a quarter million dollars defending those sort of sadists. This is an organization that has never seen Uh, an animal cruelty law that they can support. And so one of their leaders was a part of the USDA transition team. And then there was this massive purge of information related to animal effect inspection reports. It becomes pretty easy to start connecting dots. Right. John, does this change mean that the information is simply not going to be collected or is it just going to be harder to access? The information is still collected because they're still doing the inspections. Now, the USDA will say, well, you could just do a Freedom of Information Act request and still get the information. Right. Okay, well, two things about that. Number one, the fact that it's still available in some form completely undercuts their privacy argument. If their privacy argument had any validity, then it wouldn't be available in any form. Second, those Freedom of Information Act requests can take a year or more to get the information. Now, let's say you're one of those states that has a pet store sourcing law that says that pet stores cannot source from commercial dog breeding operations that have certain violations under those inspection reports. Well, if you're an animal control officer trying to uh, see the inspection reports to see if the pet store is complying with the law, the statute of limitations on the law may expire before you get the evidence to prove they even broke the law. That's why this reliance on these FOIA requests is so absurd. How can people learn more and what can they do to express their concerns and unhappiness with this action? Well, first off, we are going to be, I mean, this is something that we're tackling aggressively until the problem is solved. Now, Wayne Paselli uh, has a blog that you can subscribe to through waynepaselli.org or the humanesociety.org. And anyone that gets that blog is going to be getting updates uh, on a regular basis. I encourage everyone to sign up because we'll keep you posted on this and other uh, pressing animal protection issues. Now, what can you do? We need everyone to pick up the phones call their two U.S. senators, call their U.S. representative, and urge them to pressure the USDA to do the right thing and put this information back online. Stop protecting these animal abusers, USDA. Put the information back up there. It may ultimately come down to an act of Congress to fix this, so we've got to build the support there on Capitol Hill. John Goodwin with the Humane Society of the United States. Thank you very much. Thank you. Hi, it's Dr. Lori Kirshner, host of Animals Today Radio, and I'd like to invite you to join me each week right here for the latest animal news from around the globe. From animals in the wild, to animals on farms and in agriculture, to our beloved dogs and cats, Animals Today tackles the important issues about their welfare and rights while promoting compassion and respect for all living creatures. And yes, Animals Today is your home for a serious talk about animals, but there's big doses of fun and adventure for everyone. 
If you want to know what you can do to help tigers in the wild, or whether your family should adopt a tortoise, or why you should avoid buying puppies from pet stores, you will love animals today. So make sure to join us on this station each week. Visit us at animalstodayradio.com, subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, and join the discussion on Facebook. Thanks for listening. For the past quarter century, International Society for Animal Rights has fought the battle against dog and cat overpopulation. Its programs include reducing income taxes by allowing a deduction for spay and neuter expenses, preventing animals adopted from shelters from reproducing, and requiring the mandatory identification of dogs and cats to prevent dumping the unwanted. For a list of all ISAR overpopulation programs, please see their website at www.isaronline.org. Welcome back to Animals Today. Uh, Coming up is Save the Frogs Day, and I am so pleased to welcome back Dr. Carrie Krieger, founder and executive director of Save the Frogs. Hello again, Carrie. Hi, Peter. It's great to be back on the show. Okay, so Save the Frogs Day. What is it? Save the Frogs Day is the world's largest day of amphibian education and conservation action. It's a day that I started in 2009. We held our first Save the Frogs Day in 2009, and it takes place the last Saturday of April each year. So this year, 2017, it will be on April the 29th. And what we do is encourage everybody out there who cares about amphibians and the environment to take action in their community, wherever in the world they are, and raise awareness for amphibians or do something beneficial for amphibians and the environment. So what Save the Frogs does generally is we provide people with ideas, educational materials, inspiration, and then people go out and hold events. And since 2009, uh, Save the Frogs staff and our volunteers and supporters around the world have held over 1,200 events in 60 countries to raise awareness of declining amphibian populations. And not just educating them, but inspiring people to become proactive and to uh, empower people to be able to make a difference. Nobody should ever have to say, uh, I don't know what to do to save the planet, or I'm just one person. What can I do? There's so many ways that people can help out. So that's what Save the Frogs focuses on, and that's what Save the Frogs Day is all about, getting people to take action and to spread the word and educate uh, their communities. What sort of local events have you seen? And let's say someone or a group of people want to put on an event. How can they get going? The best way to get started is to get in touch with pre-existing environmental organizations in your town. So you could look up, and there may be environmental organizations that already are focused on uh, amphibians or on stream protection or on ponds. Uh, But get in touch with them. Let them know about Save the Frogs Day because maybe they can hold an event and you can be part of that. And the other thing I suggest is contact a local school. Perhaps you know a teacher. Uh, Perhaps you are a student. Then it just comes down to talking to your teachers. You probably have an environmental group already at your school or university. That's the best way to get started. If you go to our website, savethefrogs.com, we have a section of our website for Save the Frogs Day, savethefrogs.com slash day. And 
on that page, you can read about lots of different events that have taken a place in the past to get ideas. You can also go to the tips for event organizers page where we have lots of uh, ways that you can improve your event. We have videos mm -hmm. discussing how to run a Save the Frogs Day event. And yeah, types of events. We've had all types of events. We've had protests at the Environmental Protection Agency to call for a ban on the herbicide atrazine that can turn male frogs into females. We've had protests at frog leg selling restaurants. Uh, we've had lots of educational events at schools and universities. Uh, scientists and naturalists taking groups of people out to ponds and streams and wild places to, so that they can see amphibians in their native habitats. Uh, we've also had lots of parades, uh -huh. uh, rallies, marches. We've had 5K races oh, before. Fabulous. So there's, lot, there's any number of ways. We've had frog jumping contests, whatever people can think of. Usually it's something that's going to be fun and they just put it together. Usually uh, people have a very good time on Save the Frogs Day. It's a pretty, generally speaking, it's a very happy day. You know, the organization, I have to say, I admire Save the Frogs because how effectively you're able to reach out to youth around the world. I particularly like the art contest. Yeah, we have an art contest, and we have had submissions from about 70 different countries over the past eight years. I think we've had about 15,000 individual entries and the page is savethefrogs.com slash art. And you can look through the winners on that page and the winners and honor roll mentions. And it's amazing. We get art from all different countries. We get art coming in from kids who are six, seven years old, um, art from adults. And the one thing that's in common is that I can tell that the vast majority of these people spent time on SaveTheFrogs.com learning about amphibians. So not only are they helping to spread the word by sharing their art, which is a great way to get people to uh, care and to think about the issues, but there's a lot of people getting educated in the process. And one of the best things about it is that a lot of teachers get their students involved as part of their curriculum and the teachers don't need any prior experience in amphibian biology or conservation. They can just go to the website, um, find out how to get involved in the contest, ideally send their students to the website so that they can learn about frogs and see what they look like. And then the kids do the art and a lot of people learn about amphibians. Save the Frogs hosts really interesting eco-tours in exotic locations. Tell us about them, and also I know you've got something very special planned this year. That's right. We've been leading eco-tours since 2013. We have had them in Belize, Ecuador, and Peru. Coming up this summer, uh, June, we will be back in Ecuador, July in Costa Rica. And they're usually about 10 to 12 days and they're absolutely amazing experiences. What we do is we go there before we take the tour there. We find the best places in the country for amphibians, uh, natural scenery, native culture, and just incredible travel experience. And we take people to these places. We go out into the jungle. We hike up streams. We put on our headlamps at night, look for frogs, uh, go to waterfalls, and 
um, different types of ecosystems. So in Ecuador, we'll be going to the Amazon, we'll be going to the Andes, the cloud forests. In Costa Rica, we'll be going all the way from the Atlantic side to the Pacific. We're gonna see a lot of different frogs, get lots of photography opportunities. During the day, we go hiking and we uh, learn about ethnobotany and native culture. And so they're really incredible experiences. If you go to savethefrogs.com slash Costa Rica 2017 or to savethefrogs.com slash Ecuador 2017, you can learn about those eco tours. Now, what we're doing this year that we've never done before is we're giving away a free eco tour, completely free and $750 cash for your airfare. Hmm. So it's a sweepstakes. We're going to draw a winner on Save the Frogs Day, which is the last Saturday of April, April 29th, 2017. We're going to draw one winner. That winner will be able to choose the eco tour that they want to come on. And we're saving a spot on those eco tours to make sure that the winner will be able to choose one if they want to go on it and get their airfare um, $750. So to sign up for that, to register to win, you can't win if you don't enter, go to savethefrogs.com slash free, F-R-E-E, savethefrogs.com slash free. And I wish you the best of luck, and I may be seeing you in the jungle sometime soon. How exciting, Dr. Kerry Krieger, founder and executive director of Save the Frogs. Thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, Peter, it's been great, and best of luck, and thank you so much for getting the word out about uh, the protection of animals. You're welcome. today. Have you ever wondered what happens to animal abusers when they end up in the legal system? Are there any tools available besides punishment to stop repeat abusive acts in the future? Well, there is a new and exciting resource now available for these situations, and with us to explain is one of its developers, attorney and former Los Angeles animal cruelty prosecutor, Debbie Kinnan. Hi, Debbie. Hi, Peter. Thank you for having me. Thank you for being here. So I... I'm so excited to learn about this. Why don't you just tell us what it is and why you needed it? Sure. Well, it was desperately needed. The um, program is called Benchmark Animal Rehabilitative Curriculum, or BARC, as we call it for short. Mm -hmm. And what it is, is it is an online animal cruelty prevention and education course. It's very similar to an online traffic school. And as you mentioned um, at the introduction, there is virtually nowhere to send people who are in the system or people who are about to go into the system for mistreating animals. And through all of my years in investigating and prosecuting animal cruelty cases, I came to realize that the majority of behaviors that um, result in some form of animal cruelty, regardless of whether it's intentional cruelty or dogfighting, cockfighting, or neglect, they really occurred as a result of a basic lack of education about animals and their needs, a basic lack of knowledge regarding what the law requires of people who own animals, and or a cultural-based belief about animals and the way they should be treated. Mm. Another key factor, of course, in some cases was the lack of empathy for animals. So, as you mentioned, um, some cases actually demand that somebody be incarcerated, but even if somebody goes to jail 
or prison, and even if somebody is ordered for a period of time not to own animals, at some point they're going to get out of jail or prison, and at some point they're going to have contact again with animals. And the question is, do we want them to have the same attitude and understanding of animals as they had before they were convicted? Or do we want to effectuate some type of a long-term change that will result, hopefully, in them not repeating their behavior in the future? So I've been thinking, again, for a very long time. As a matter of fact, many states actually mandate that people who are convicted of animal cruelty go through some type of course or, um, or counseling or treatment. And even if it's not mandated, then it definitely is recommended. Mm-hmm. So I've been seeing the lack locally, obviously, but I also, being in touch and training um, animal control officers and prosecutors around the country, was constantly being asked, where can we send our offenders to educate them? And there was virtually nothing available. So it's been kind of percolating in my mind. And then uh, one day I saw somebody taking an online traffic school. Yeah. And I thought, you know what, this really is the way of the future. This is the best way to deliver some type of educational course. Um, so that's when I started kind of putting the curriculum together. Yeah. And um, with the help of my deputy executive director, we found an exceptional way to deliver it um, online in a national way. And in addition to all of the text, we've included um, original videos that we produced. We have articles in there. We have um, articles to read. We have quizzes. We have um, a final exam. And we also include a very special feature, which is advanced facial recognition technology, which helps those who refer people to the course feel comfortable knowing that the person who was referred to take the course is the one who's actually taking it. Oh, neat. So who are making the referrals? Okay, so it is a referral-based program. Only people who um, are members of approved agencies can refer people to the BART course. And the people of the approved agencies include members of the criminal justice system, um, probation officers, judges, defense attorneys, and prosecutors. We also accept referrals from animal control or animal welfare professionals who regularly see cases out in the field that really, instead of a citation or criminal charges, education is more appropriate, so mm-hmm. they can refer people to take this course. We also accept referrals from school um, administrators or educators because the BART course is available in addition to adults to also juveniles um, ages 15 to 17. And we also accept referrals from school administrators, animal control, members of the criminal justice system. You know, and on a case-by-case basis, we would obviously be willing to accept referrals from people who we feel are appropriately referring people Mm -hmm. to BART. And it's very interesting that this program can be used as a standalone or as an adjunct to other modalities that are going to be imposed. That is absolutely correct. We, I, I should make it very clear that the BARC course is educational. It does not take the place of mental health counseling. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It is not intended to take the place of addiction treatment or, or drugs or alcohol. Um, so this, as you said, is part and parcel of an overall effort to rehabilitate and educate people who have mistreated animals in the past or shown a propensity for disregarding their feelings. Okay, so I know this is a fairly new program. What can you report so far as to how it's working out? Well, um, we just launched in November, so we have been receiving referrals um, from 
various prosecuting agencies for the most part. We've received some from defense attorneys also from around the country. And um, from the survey results that we're getting from students at the end of the program or the course, um, they're reporting that they enjoy it, that they've gotten a lot out of it. And um, the people who are referring people to the course are reporting that it is extremely easy to make referrals to, which was obviously our, uh, our goal. The last thing we want to do is make things difficult for people who are already um, handling a lot of cases. And what other data are you collecting going forward? So we have, um, at the beginning and the end of the course, we have what we call a before and an after test, where um, there are a number of scenarios and questions that students answer, which test their base knowledge and understanding of animals' um, needs and their feelings. So they take that test at the beginning and they take it again at the end of the course so we can compare results to see how well um, our course is instilling these ideas. We also have an attitudinal survey which is a survey that measures levels of empathy. That is not something that we developed. That's something that my deputy executive director, who is a psychologist, um, found and used. It is an accepted uh, survey within the scientific community. Mm -hmm. And again, they take that survey both before and after they take the course. And um, just to test the efficacy of our course, as I said, we have the end of course survey asking students to report to us um, what their thoughts are about the course. Yeah. We intend also to do longitudinal surveys, statistic collecting regarding recidivism rates, but that's after, obviously, we have enough uh, referrals and students under our belts who've gone through the course. On the website, you've indicated that the Susie Spector Foundation has uh, supported this, at least in part. What is the Susie Spector Foundation? Okay, so BARC is actually a program of the Susie Spector Foundation. BARC is a nonprofit. Um, Susie Spector Foundation is a nonprofit. And the Susie Spector Foundation is dedicated to preventing abuse of animals through education. Our tagline is inspiring change through knowledge. Mm. Our vision is that every animal enjoys a safe and compassionate environment free from any, all, any and all types of abuse. And because of my background and the background of my deputy executive director, who also happens to be an attorney, all of our educational programs that we are going to be presenting in the future um, it's humane education, but it also includes a, uh, a legal twist. So basically, we subscribe to the idea that when people know better, for the most part, they do better. And so we want to inspire a change in people's future behavior that has an impact on animals by educating them and by hopefully instilling some understanding and compassion and empathy for animals. Sounds fabulous. Of course, we agree with all those uh, values and efforts. Debbie, how can the general public learn more about it and uh, view some of those neat videos? Well, people can go to uh, the Susie Spector Foundation website. That's susiespectorfoundation.org, S-U-S-I-E-S-P-E-C-T-O-R, foundation.org. And you can um, look under our programs and you can find a really nice outline there of BARC and see a, a really nice video that gives an overview of BARC. You can also get a lot of information about BARC on the BARC website, and that's barkeducation.org, B-A-R-C, education.org. And on the BARC Education website, we have a full detailed outline of the course curriculum and a whole lot of information about how the referral process works and uh, what, what the course is intended to do and the course goals. Debbie, I want to commend you on this wonderful work and wish you all the best going forward. We look forward to seeing how this matures. Well, thank you very much. 
You're listening to Animals Today. Now, next week is Bat Appreciation Week. That's April 2nd to the 8th. And you don't want to go away because after the break, Peter will be interviewing bat expert Merlin Tuttle about these interesting creatures. So just to get us warmed up here a little bit, Peter, let's talk for a minute or two about bats. Okay. Now, things you probably know are that bats are mammals. They are nocturnal animals. Now, most bats use sound or biological sonar known as echolocation to navigate their way in the dark. So they emit sounds that bounce back like an echo and allow them to detect obstacles in their path and hunt for food, etc. So, Peter, do you know what other animals use echolocation? Mm. Okay, so whales and uh, yeah. whales. Yeah, yeah, other animals include dolphins, dolphins. whales, shrews, and, and certain birds. Shrews? Yeah. I didn't know that. Now, there are over a thousand different species of bats, but there are three species of vampire bats, which feed solely on blood. Did you know that? I knew that. Now, I'm sure you're going to cover this in your upcoming interview with our bat expert, but we know bats carry rabies. So should we be scared of them? I mean, should we be concerned when we see a bat flying over our heads that they might be a vampire bat and they're going to swoop down and bite us and give us rabies? Well, before I spoke with that guest, I was, but not so much anymore. What do you think? Yeah, I have my concerns. I remember when I was a child and with the family on a camping vacation, one of the women camping at a nearby site wore a scarf over her head because she told us that bats can get tangled in your hair. So she scared all the women at the campsite to cover their heads when we saw bats flying above us. And then she sold everyone a scarf. (laughs) So the vampire bats feed on blood, but other species of bats feed on insects and fruit or fish. Now bats can live by themselves or they can live with thousands of other bats in caves. Bats can live for over 20 years. And there's a type of bat called flying foxes, which are the largest bats in the world. Yes, I would be concerned if I saw that flying over my head. Me too. I would say the majority of people are scared of bats, almost up there with snakes and spiders. So is the fear of bats rational? Well, stay tuned and you'll find out. Hi, it's Dr. Lori from Animals Today Radio, and here's your Animals Today fun fact for today. Do you ever wonder why your cat bumps their head against you? Well, that unexpected butting of her head is known as head bunting, and this is your kitty's way of bonding with you. She is identifying you as one of her friends, and head bunting is her way of sharing her love and affection. And this is your Animals Today fun fact for today. Welcome back to Animals Today. Make sure to visit us at animalstodayradio.com. You know... A few weeks ago, we were talking a little bit about bats, and I mentioned that we had found a small dead bat in our backyard, and uh, we, in fact, talked about bats and rabies risk with a veterinarian, Dr. Robert Reed, and even after that segment, I'm thinking, you know, I don't know anything really about bats. Uh, We've talked about them in the context of the wind farms and how they're getting killed there. And then this little segment with Dr. Reed. But really, you know, I should know a little bit more about bats. And then, coincidentally, we get delivered a brand new 
very colorful, nice book about bats. And I'm paging through and I'm like, hey, here's our opportunity. So now I want to welcome Merlin Tuttle. He's the author of a wonderful new book, The Secret Lives of Bats. Welcome, Merlin. I'm glad to be here. Merlin, what strikes me as I'm paging through your uh, wonderful book is the, the variety of, of bats around the world. It's really, people don't know how many different sorts of bats there are. And you're not even hardly seeing 1% of them when you look at my book. It's an absolutely unbelievable. There are giants with nearly six-foot wingspans. There are tiny little guys that weigh a third less than a U.S. penny. There are snow white ones, jet black ones, ones that are snow white with black spots, black ones with white spots. There are red ones, there are orange ones, there are almost any color you can think of, ones with brilliant yellow wings like on the cover of my book, painted bats of Southeast Asia that are just as brightly colored as any butterfly. The subtitle is My Adventures with the World's Most Misunderstood Mammals. Uh, What are the main misunderstandings or misconceptions about bats? Well, unfortunately, there are too many people that profit by our fear of bats, and they keep telling us that bats could give us all kinds of dread diseases, when in fact the track record of bats in reality is one of the finest on our planet when it comes to living safely with people. I've worked with bats for 55 years on every continent where they occur. I've personally handled, photographed, studied hundreds of species, often surrounded by literally millions at a time in their caves. I've never been attacked by a bat. I've never contracted a disease from a bat. And in fact, for any human who simply uses common sense and doesn't, you know, if you find a bat that's out in the open in the daytime where you can pick it up it's probably sick and that's a good one to leave alone yeah and but just if people just don't pick up and try to handle bats there's so little danger that it's incalculably small but you mentioned there are industry forces that that promote this image these are exterminators these are people who want to rid the world of bats us to fear bats. Some of those have to do with selling very expensive vaccines. Some have to do with pest controls. Some mm-hmm. have the most guilty ones lately appear to be virologists that uh, want to study rare diseases. Diseases that are so rare that we're only just now discovering them, but they call them emerging diseases to make them sound a little more scary, and then they connect them up with bats, and by that time you've got something you really scare somebody with because they don't know either about these rare diseases or about bats, and it's good for getting grants and headline media stories. Now, I know we're speaking to you in Austin, and Austin has a lot of history related to bats. Tell us about that. Austin's kind of a typical story for me. Uh, When the bats first started moving into our downtown bridge, hundreds of thousands of them, that's not so typical, but uh, when they started moving in, health officials reported that they were largely rabid and going to attack people. People of Austin panicked, made national headlines, international headlines, that hundreds of thousands of rabid bats were invading and attacking the citizens of Austin. And yet, all we had to do was caution people not to pick up bats that were out in the open, leave them alone, 
and 35 years later we're still waiting for the first person to be attacked or in any way harmed by a bat. No one's contracted disease from a bat. We now simply understand that they're eating 15 tons of crop and yard pests on average night and bringing in 12 million tourist dollars every summer from the millions of people that come to observe them close up. So it's a bat destination. Yeah, and you know, I've I've been at the world's most important places where large colonies of bats remain in close association with people, and I've yet to find a single instance where anybody can prove that a single, uh, you know, outbreak of disease was caused by a bat. Yeah. And, uh, you know, a, a normal bat that isn't feeling threatened is just as cute as any chipmunk or hamster. The bats that people traditionally saw were bats that somebody captured, yeah. held upside down for a picture, and the poor little thing thought he was about to be eaten and uh, snarled big, and this little guy with a head the size of your end of your thumb gets blown up to page size looking like a saber-toothed tiger. It's no wonder people f- were afraid of bats. Yeah. There is a definite cuteness that you uh, that you see as you're paging through through your pictures. It's really remarkable. Well, for anybody who wants to really see a lot of bats as they are, uh, just go to my website at MerlinTuttle.com, and you can see hundreds of pictures of bats from all over the world doing almost everything a bat does. Merlin, what threats do bats face? They face all kinds of threats. Like, you know, all animals face the problem of losing habitat. In my experience, the single biggest threat to bats is irrational fear. Mm. Sure, you could die of a disease from a bat, but the odds are a whole lot better that you'll die from being hit by a falling spacecraft. And quite aside from from fear is the neglect that comes when people don't understand a group of animals and uh, so they don't get promoted. You know, bats can be just as cute and winsome as any panda or any other cute animal on the planet and anybody that goes to my website will be able to see that easily or you can see it from my book. And uh, so it's just a matter of what we don't see very well, we fear. Bats that have five and nearly six foot wingspans and live out in the open are eulogized as folk heroes, whereas in parts of the world where they're all small and live in hard to see places, people fear them simply because they don't understand them. Yeah. Merlin, it's just around Halloween time, so I just wanted to ask you about the vampire bat. Uh, Where are they? Vampire bats live only in Latin America. There are three species of them. Only one species actually ever harms people or their livestock. Well, the book is The Secret Lives of Bats, My Adventures with the World's Most Misunderstood Animals. And not only are you describing all the variety of bats and what they do, we get to learn about your life, which you've dedicated to protecting and educating about these fascinating animals. Thank you very much for joining us on Animals Today. Thank you very much for having me. And this is Peter Spiegel encouraging you to nurture your love and compassion for the only other beings sharing our planet, the animals. The animals.